This is the Heritage Radio Network News Hour, Sunday at noon. I'm Patrick Martins. We're at Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And uh, we're going to start off this hour with some news. Um, a new pig flu strain puts North America on alert. Uh, a deadly strain of the flu virus, um, which is actually a disease that's never been seen before, killed 16 people in Mexico. Um, and there's 800 cases suspected. Uh, the World Health Organization has convened an emergency committee, and Obama has also, you know, organized his, you know, Center for Disease Control to, you know, look at what this could be. There have also been um, reports in California and Texas that uh, this disease is, uh, you know, very, very serious and, um, you know, has been seen in schools. Um, that's, we will report more on that story as it develops, but again, a pig flu, uh, puts North America on alert, uh, a bill passed in California, uh, that prohibits the consumption of antibiotics by farm animals. Uh, Dean Flores got the California Senate, uh, three to one to phase out use of non-therapeutic antibiotics in animals meant for human consumption. Uh, hopefully uh, that will set an example for the nation. Then uh, another story from the Farm Press, uh, which is bills itself as timely and reliable information for Southeast agriculture. Uh, the peanut scare could cost growers $1 billion. The impact of the nationwide peanut butter recall has been far-reaching and could ultimately cost America's peanut producers up to $1 billion in lost production. The reason? The Peanut Corporation of America, uh, where the uh, salmonella outbreak originated that resulted in the recall. So just to know the processor's you know, negligence ended up having serious ramifications for farmers. Uh, their negligence uh, led to 600 people getting sick in 46 states. Um, and the Farm Press writes that uh, that peanut organization uh, had a culture of being a bad actor in the peanut industry. Uh, contracts are not being offered to farmers, and uh, small businesses uh, are basically being hurt disproportionately. Um, because, you know, only the big guys survive, especially during recalls. Um, so that is that. And then uh, next story, uh, also on the same theme, ill from food. Investigators vary by state. Minnesota um, tracers and uh, people that, you know, look to secure that there's no problems in any of the production plants are doing a great, great job. From 1990 to 2006, Minnesota health officials uncovered 548 food-related illnesses and outbreaks. Uh, those in Kentucky, on the other hand, only found 18. Um, basically, uh, they Minnesota has been doing a great job of uncovering, you know, which foods have been contaminated. Um, unfortunately, you know, tracing food um, is left to a patchwork of more than 3,000 federal and state and local health departments that are, you know, for the most part, poorly financed, poorly trained, and uh, a little disconnected. That comes uh, from the New York Times, an article by Gardner Harris. Um, 
And now uh, the uh, FDA uh, wants basically states to grade their own inspectors, um, which is a kind of laissez-faire uh, tactic um, that has not been working. Uh, for instance, the Blakely peanut plant is, is a big example of that not working. Um, the last time the FDA reviewed Georgia to see how they in turn were reviewing other businesses uh, was 2001. Um, and since then, there have been 700 illnesses. So FDA not really monitoring the states, and the states not really doing their job. Uh, you know, is self-analysis, you know, a laissez-faire approach the right way? Um, basically, right now, and in the state's defense, they are not funded very well. The FDA's current contract with Georgia calls for agriculture departments to inspect 225 food firms and seafood processors during the fiscal year that ends on September 30th. But for each inspection, the government only gives the state 524 to $657, and they don't even include uh, expenses for travel or training or other expenses. So, you know, the states don't maybe get enough money from the government, and this speaks to what an issue we brought up last week, who should pay, uh, you know, who should pay for the FDA to have more authority and uh, be able to do a better job. Uh, Renato Sardo last week said it is indeed the consumer, even though we don't want to hear that. Um, and the other, you know, thing that Heritage Radio Network kind of believes is maybe uh, the idea of an FDA czar, about a czar whose job it is just to, you know, it's not such a big country. Uh, maybe one person uh, could do the job if given the responsibility. Um, and then another interesting fact is recently as the 1980s, FDA inspectors visited every food processing plant at least once every two years. Now the agency conducts about 7,000 inspections a year for 150,000 domestic processing firms. At that rate, it could take more than 21 years to inspect each plant once. That does not sound sustainable. Um, but in other good news, the uh, FDA is uh, likely to get power over tobacco. And uh, Senator Edward Kennedy, a Democrat from Massachusetts, is uh, expected to have at least 60 co-sponsors uh, that would allow, um, that would give the FDA authority to regulate the way tobacco products are made, advertised, and sold. Um, and uh, thanks to a friendlier administration, uh, Edward Kennedy did not have to contend with George Bush, which opposed FDA regulations and threatened to veto any, uh, you know, if it was uh, approved by Congress regarding the tobacco firms. Well, uh, we are going to take a short break, and then we are going to come back and talk to a couple of chefs, Andrew Field from Roberta's, uh, which is a fantastic kitchen, and uh, Dave Schutenberg from Cabrito to talk about uh, animal welfare institutes um, and the importance of traceability in the marketplace.
We're here with uh, the. I'm Patrick Martins. This is the Heritage Foods News kind of, I guess, entertainment hour. Um, we're here with Andrew Field. Hey, Andrew. Hey, how's it going? Good. Um, you might want to bring the mic a little closer. Cool. Um, so we just went through this whole litany. You're, well, first of all, tell us who you are. You're the chef of Roberta's, right? Yes, I do the the breakfast uh, hours, the breakfast zone um, at Roberta's here. I also do um, a couple shifts uh, at Vinegar Hill House uh, down in Vinegar Hill in Brooklyn. That's uh, Gene Adamson's place? That's Gene Adamson, exactly. Uh, super cool. Uh, great great family vibe kind of going there. Uh, and we also do a, f- a Rockaway Taco. Oh. Uh, out in Rockaway Beach. Uh, What's that taco place like? It's great. It's a real street style Mexican uh, Mexican food, um, very street oriented. Um, Rockaway Rockaway's a beach with a, kind of a weird vibe, but you know I think now economically speaking, the summers will just make a make it make it more more uh, accessible. Who uh, goes there? Um, it's a, a lot of Brooklyn kids. Uh, definitely, there's you know there's a there's kind of that scene. Um, but you also get a lot of the Latin population from Queens and all of the, uh, the surrounding areas, pretty close to Rockaway. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still accessible, so you know, and to be on the beach, forty-five minutes from New York City, it's kind of a, uh-huh. a fun, a fun spot. So yeah, I'd yeah. say. So, um, are you serving sustainable or locally grown foods at that taco place? I mean, does the price point allow for that? Rockaway Taco is is uh, the the foundation is to keep the the food cheap. Um, it's really quick. Um, you're, you're out on the beach. The, 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 the whole idea was to just keep it, you know, kind of a, a high volume, um, accessible accessibility in price and in, in, uh, sustainability in a, in a kitchen production level. Mm-hmm. Um, so that also just kind of makes, uh, make, it makes it easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the menu is very small. There's, you know, three types of tacos, two types of quesadillas. It's a, it's a very simple idea. Right. So that, that, that allows it to be very simple. Well, that's cool. Um, so I mean, we just covered all these stories like, you know, the peanut scare, you know, salmonella, you know, investigators not doing their job, you know, FDA not having the funding or the power to do anything. Um, you know, there was that victory with the tobacco industry, but basically, you know, it's tough. Like, What's the New York restaurant scene doing? I mean, you working at three restaurants, basically, or three food places. Um, like, what is it doing and what is it reacting against? I mean, how does it operate in the face of all these, like, horrible news? It's interesting to see the, the changes in, in the food industry and the people that are, are doing food. I think the, the biggest trend right now is that, obviously, using local, farmer, uh, local farm produce and, and all of those things. The only the, it's it's an accessibility thing. Um, restaurants, it's easy because you produce more food. On maybe on an individual level, you know, it's it's kind of it's tough. You don't know uh, with our New York City lives, you don't know how many days a week that you actually will prepare a meal at your at, at your house. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as far between the restaurants, the more people that are are uh, being able to purchase from local farms and whatnot, it's just giving a better quality product to the people out there mm-hmm. obviously you know we we know the the facts and in turn that'll just make it cheaper uh in in all of the restaurants you know right. it's it just it's 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 an accessibility thing i think i mean uh, people basically have to you know pay more right i mean if they want it exactly of course but i yeah absolutely you know it is it, it is a bit more expensive but i think on 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 terms of restaurant things obviously there's many uh different uh different paths uh or different topics um, but I think in restaurants, it's just um, an accessibility uh, matter. 
you know now through through uh, distributors and and Baldor, who is one mm-hmm. of the, like the restaurant uh, pr- produce uh, company suppliers. Um, they like you can get Satter Farms products. You can get mm-hmm. which is pr- one of the top uh, those kind of farms. But you know, you so Baldor is a huge company that tries to almost act like a clearinghouse for the types of foods that we should and would want to eat. Exactly. That's you know they they which which is in that in terms of accessibility, it's it it makes sense. Uh, you know, as far as they they get to buy all of those things. Um, and then it kind of goes out from there. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's a markup. You know, it goes to restaurants. It's you know, it's it's kind of it's it's moved around. You know, um, it doesn't come from so far away. So the 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 percentage of waste or the margin of waste, I guess, mm-hmm. is, is will probably drive the price down a little bit. You know, right. more comparable. Fewer miles, gas, all that. Of course. Now, uh, what about with meats? I mean, is it hard to? Is it as easy with meats and proteins as it is with fruits and vegetables? I think uh, you know as far as the consciousness of the of those uh, that topic right now is definitely on rest on restaurant tours minds chefs minds right because it's like center of the plate it has to, exactly you know you're you're really focusing on trying to get um, the 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 top quality mm-hmm. uh, product uh, the guys here at Roberta's um, uh, Carlo in the in the afternoon or the evenings it's like those guys. Um, they definitely are looking to find those uh, specific things. How mm-hmm. to get them? That's the you know that's that's the things. Restaurants obviously right. you can buy in quantities. On an individual level, it might be a bit more difficult. Because yeah, it seems like New York City chefs are like on the cutting edge of this food re- revolution. Like what you chefs do collectively is then eventually what the nation does. Correct. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. you it's, guys have a lot of power, and you guys seem to be working, especially. I mean, I know for a fact Vinegar Hill House and, and this place have never been in the taco truck, but I mean, those two places, the first two, I mean, are amazing what they're doing. I mean, I know what they're supporting. So, well, really cool. Well, thanks for coming in. And I know Thank you're you. here for Brunt, so I'm sure we'll be hearing from you again cool. right on. with more notice next time. Absolutely. <laughs>
I'm uh, Patrick Martins. This is the news, I guess, slash entertainment hour on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, we're about to have Dave Schutenberg on to talk about the Animal Welfare Institute and the importance of traceability in the food supply and humane treatment of animals. Um, but first, we'll start with these two stories. Um, in the meeting place, M-E-A-T-I-N-G, um, they talk about a new slaughterhouse, which is trying to open in Buffalo, but uh, the community board might be trying to stop them because of uh, odor and, and smells and whatnot. So um, we hope that they um, do eventually open that slaughterhouse, um, which is trying to be opened by two Brooklyn businessmen, Mustasa Jara and his father, Yusuf. So if uh, you guys are listening, please call in. We'd love to uh, support your uh, opening of a slaughterhouse, which is actually right next to a subway. So we all know the subway smells a lot more in the cosmic sense. Um, the number is 718-497-2128. Thanks, Heather. The show is being produced by Heather. She's doing a stand-up job. Um, and then talking about smell and odor and manure, uh, dairy farmers in Ohio hope a new ad campaign will help the public understand why they spread manure, which can make for a smelly spring. And they're uh, allotting $15,000 to an ad campaign to place ads in newspapers to uh, convince locals that it's not so bad to smell bad. And then before we have Dave on, um, Dixon's Farmstead Meats is a new butcher shop that will feature meats exclusively raised um, by family-owned New York State farms. And it's coming to Chelsea Market in August. Um, that's a kind of cool... Uh, they were actually on as a guest in uh, Zach Palaccio's show, which airs on Thursdays live on the Heritage uh, Network. Um, now, so we're going to now bring on Dave Schutenberg from Cabrito, one of my favorite restaurants in New York. And Dave, are you with us? Certainly am. How are you, Patrick? What's up, Dave? What's going on? Where are you? I figured for sure that the talk of stinky and smelly was the segue into my introduction, knowing you, so I'm glad you let me off. I'm out of here, man. Jeez, no smell. I, you, you did not think, I, I did not think of you when I brought up that, uh, that issue. But uh, we're just back from um, Alfred, New York, where the Animal Welfare Approved People organized an event. Um, tell us a little bit about your involvement with them, uh, David. Well, I actually met uh, Andrew Gunther from Animal Welfare Approved uh, last November uh, when, well, you know, you were involved, too, at a Thanksgiving event uh, for the Food Bank of New York, where... Right. You, uh, we all work together facilitating bringing in uh, thousands and thousands of pounds of food to uh, feed undernourished and underprivileged Yorkers for Thanksgiving. And uh, I've kind of been a big flag waver of their organization ever since. Great people, great cause. Because, I mean, as people, maybe uh, lower socioeconomic level people, are probably eating the worst of the worst. They're eating commodity and the lesser cuts of them. I mean, lesser well, cuts. Not only commodity, but uh, highly processed and highly filled and highly preserved, lowest of the low, which is just a, 
a pretty lethal cocktail all the way around, I would say. Yeah, and it's leading to an obesity epidemic and diabetes. Um, I mean, growing up in the chef world, I mean, were you involved in that commodity world when you were starting up the ranks? I mean, now I know Cabrito in the West Village is, uh, you know, sources, you know, the highest quality proteins. But I mean, what was it like growing up in the restaurant industry? Well, I mean, the thing is, I'm a career changer, so I haven't been in the restaurant industry long enough to have done my time in the fast food world or wash dishes here or wash dishes there. I went to culinary school after, you know, 10 years in in corporate America. So I was able to learn a lot quickly and make choices and fortunate also to work at some some really high-end restaurants in New York where it became, you know, that's what you were taught from day one and it became the standard. I wasn't going to accept anything less than that. So I'm fortunate in that regard. That's very lucky. I mean, uh, yeah, traceability in the food supply is um, is very important. And I mean, you put your you given dedicate a lot of your free time to supporting the animal welfare approved group, um, and that basically provides traceability that the animals have been raised in a hu- humane manner. I mean, why is that important to you, from a chef's perspective? From a sh- from a as I've grown older, from a personal perspective, it's just the it's the proper thing to do. I mean, every living thing on this earth deserves respect in my in my uh, view. And while I can accept the fact that animals are raised as a commodity at the end of the day it doesn't mean that their time on this earth has to be anything less than noble and and incredibly respected as a chef i find that um animals that are raised properly humanely end up tasting better and at the end of the day as a chef that's the bottom line as well when you're talking about running a, a restaurant when it, it that brass tax becomes about flavor and these animals taste better when they when they uh die stress-free there's not an issue of you know it just it's an overall better quality product and um how do you um navigate the slippery slope of uh, you know cabrito being what's the average price of a of a dish at, at cabrito well I, I think our check average there is and this includes drinks you know is around 35 dollars per person that's, a, wow. that's the entire meal including certainly drinks. it isn't super high considering New York City. Um, we have we, we feature street food. We feature homestyle cooking that runs anywhere from, you know, $5 uh, tacos to, to $8, 8 to $12 appetizers and, you know, 17 to $26 entrees. So certainly not super expensive. But How do you that, pull uh, it off to support local farms, to support, you know, um, in all honesty, you know, Heritage Foods company I work with. Um, I mean, how do you do it and why don't more people do it like that? I do it because it seems to me in this, when you, when you approach it this way, you work together across the board and everybody finds that middle ground, you know, be it, be it you guys as, um, as distributors or be it the farmer as the beginning point in the supply chain. Everybody knows that the end goal is to kind of preach the gospel, so to speak, as well as, you know, making, as, as well as profitability. And I think if you have like-minded people that see the value on both sides, everybody can come to uh, agreements financially that make sense for everybody to be involved. It doesn't have to be exorbitant. I prefer slow cooking almost as a rule in my personal style of cooking, and that affords me the ability to buy um, off-cuts or lesser cuts and still still coax a, a good amount of flavor and a, and a, and a you know, a good end product with it. So I, I focus on that. However, I do have to deal with the 
you know, oh my God, he sells a five dollar taco. But at mm-hmm. the end of the day, you know, you're 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 we're, we're kind of breaking new ground, and that people are starting to understand and appreciate the fact that the provenance and traceability is important, and they want to where their where their meat came from. Tell me, how did you think, uh, before we go, we have a couple minutes left. Uh, thank you so much for being on a Sunday. I know you have a beautiful daughter and a family, and um, thanks for giving up your Sunday. Um, tell me, how did you think the event in Alford went? Um, it was an animal welfare-approved, like, big meeting. And what do you think it's important was, It's important was, and how do you think it went? Oh, it was amazing. It's amazing as a, as a chef to get out of the kitchen for a little while and start to connect with the people who, who are part of the the supply chain, you know, we, we met farmers, we met people who specialize in, in, in transport, we met people who specialize in, in slaughter. I mean, it's great to start to meet these people, and I think when everybody can look at each other face-to-face and discuss their needs and their, and their wants and their desires for how the entire system works, everybody does, does better at the end. Um, you know, it's about focusing on moving forward with sustainability, um, not only from the animal welfare standpoint, but the obvious benefits of taking care of the earth and taking care of your body as a human being. When you eat that way, you're eating better and you're not you're not hurting your body as much. Um, it's it's just super great, you know. And, and hopefully, you learn that there's a market, there's a guy out there who has a product that's ready to sell, and I'm the guy that's ready to buy, and we can meet face to face and 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 fix the problems of of you know linking those that chain together from start to finish. It was, it was a great thing to be there. Yeah. I mean, um, I was honored enough to be invited as well. And, um, you know, it was just putting a face to these things. I mean, it puts it back in the forefront of what we're thinking about and, uh, you know, it breaks down a lot of, uh, of the barriers. I mean, it's amazing that, you know, a place that's, you know, we source more food from, you know, places like, you know, Nebraska, you know, and there's been such a divide between us and our neighbors. You know, they're in the same state, and yet they seem so foreign when it comes to where we source our food. So um, that's the uh, – what's their website? It's animalwelfareapproved.org? Correct, correct. There's lots of great information, lots of great farmer stories out there. I mean, they – I, I would encourage anybody who's interested in animal welfare and, and, and food traceability and provenance to go out there and read everything that they're about. They have the highest standards of – of animal husbandry in a difficult sea to navigate in terms of is it organic is it humanely raised is it this is it that um yeah humane the, is the uh call, yeah the calls and be a part of it wave a- the flag absolutely and i know they try to save wild animals too which is pretty cool like bald eagles and tigers yeah, and i think they started the save the whale campaign and Robert Kennedy Jr. is a big part of it. He calls it like the gold standard, you know, for animal welfare groups. So congratulations Absolutely. for your group, uh, your participation in that. And, uh, you as well. Yeah, well, thanks for being on. And uh, next time, try to come in the studio, huh? Oh, absolutely. Cool, David. I'd love to. Thanks, man. Thanks, Patrick. We'll talk soon.
But a smart man is on Harlem And the moon is in the street And the shadow boys are breaking all the laws And you're east of East St. Louis And the wind is making speeches And the rain sounds like a round of applause My name is Patrick Martins This is the Heritage Radio Network uh, broadcasting out of two shipping containers in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show was brought to you by TechServe, the best Macintosh store in the world. They have a really old Coke machine as well. Uh, before we get to um, our next guest, Mike Antochi, fascinating lens into the LA food scene and meat distributor scene, um, we're going to just talk about some national issues. Um, that ends with something about Miss America. Um, for Villasac, the proof is in the planting. Jane Black, someone who we've talked about before, uh, wrote an article about the People's Garden, which is a 1,300-square-foot organic vegetable garden on the Mall in Washington, D.C. Um, Tom Villasac came up with the idea, you know, uh, to, to you know basically push through this idea that it had been talked about for years by people like Alice Waters and the Obamas just planted a garden on the White House grounds and uh, now there's going to be a big beautiful garden um, you know right for the for the entire world to see Lincoln actually founded the Department of Agriculture uh, which is obviously paying for this garden in 1862 and referred to it as the People's Department um, and uh, Tom Vilsack has uh, been doing a great uh, job so far, and he is quoted as saying, if we can get people to focus on fruits and vegetables and more healthy foods, we'll be better in terms of our health care situation. Um, among the things planted was the Three Sisters Garden, which was a Native American planting. Uh, the Three Sisters being corn, pole beans, and squash are grown together. Um, all food raised on this garden will be donated to the local food bank. And um, this comes um, at a time when uh, Tom Vilsack just saw Eric Schlosser and Michael Pollan being interviewed in the new documentary or film, Food, Inc. Um, and uh, these victory gardens, you know, can be traced back to uh, Pearl Harbor in 1941 when uh, Secretary of Agriculture Claude Wickard uh, convened a National War Garden Commission to promote home and community gardens, uh, community gardens later named Victory Gardens. Um, so that's an interesting article. And now uh, we're coming to a very kind of like the hot topic. Uh, promises, Promises. There's two articles. Promises, Promises, Obama and Black Farmers by Ben Evans uh, from the Associated Press. And then a, uh, another uh, press release uh, by the Federation of Southern Cooperatives Lands Assistant Fund. And it talks about uh, USDA civil right violations when it comes to black farmers. So uh, the first article is uh, negative about the Obama administration and says that whereas he promised to, uh, you know, rectify some of these civil right violations to farmers, you know, they haven't really acted on it. Um, and it quotes that... Um, the number of acres owned by black farmers has gone from a peak of 15 million acres in 1910 to a little over 3 million acres today. Um, and Tom Vilsack is um, basically, you know, dedicated himself to 
equitable access to these agencies, um, you know, and trying to rectify a lot of the uh, problems of um, basically black farmers being left out of funding and, you know, access to support and money uh, that they deserve and that other white farmers got. Um, actually, S Secretary Vilsack is reversing the Bush position, which put energy and effort towards not helping um, any of the farmers, uh, any of the black farmers with the Pigford case. Um, and so um, Pigford's was uh, a bunch of claims by black farmers against the USDA. And uh, many black farmers have not gotten any recompense whatsoever for that type of civil rights violation. Um, so, you know, we will look and follow uh, what, um, what they're doing um, and how the Obama administration basically backs a campaign promise towards black farmers. Um, this was, uh, we're not going to talk much about this one, but your climate friendly kitchen um, is a, an article in the Oregonian that just came out. And uh, I've always wanted better food section food articles from the Oregonian, but they're always hard to find. Um, I hate to say the worst food section, uh, at least online, you know, uh, unless they're leaving articles out, you know, the Atlanta Journal Constitution um, and the Portland Oregonian, but they did write one, Your Climate Friendly Kitchen by Leslie Cole. And her five directives for more climate friendly kitchens are eat less red meat and dairy products, buy whole foods in season or frozen in season, eat fewer processed foods. Break your bag habit and seed the furniture or seed the future by buying food from our region and waste not. Uh, so that was a, a good article that came out in uh, Tuesday's Oregonian. And right before we get to Mike Antochi, uh, we just found out Miss America, Miss Katie Stam, was a past 4 H member. Who knew? Stan believes in the power of agriculture, and here's something she said. I remember giving my very first speech when I was eight years old. It was titled, What is a Limousine? And it talked about the qualities of the limousine breed in comparison to a quality limousine luxury vehicle. Uh, she remembers her first 4-H heifers, which were named Sparkles and Apple Blossom, and how proud she was to earn ribbons uh, for how well they were raised. So um, this is an article that came out in the Cattle Business Weekly. Um, and congratulations uh, to Miss Stam for not forgetting her roots and for Donald Trump for giving a stage to the uh, Miss America pageant, which can bring up controversial issues, but also very good ones like a shout out to 4-H. So um, with Miss America, and I think that might have happened in Hollywood, although I'm not really sure, um, we want to bring in one of uh, one of my oldest friends within the food world, and a, uh, I'm a big fan of his. Uh, his name is Mike Antochi, and he is, among other things, uh, an actor, a comedian, a meat distributor. But uh, let's get him on the air, calling in from Los Angeles. Hey, Mike. Morning, Patrick. How are you? Good, man. What's going on? Where are you exactly? You know, I'm sitting in my living room. I just got done with breakfast. I'm just hanging out. And uh, getting ready to go enjoy a beautiful day in uh, sunny Southern Cal. What neighborhood do you live in in Southern Cal? I live in uh, South Redondo Beach, just a couple blocks from the ocean. Can you hear the ocean? Uh, you can hear the seals. Really? You live yeah. near seals? There's a bell. There's a bell out there, and the seals hang out. You know, they're doing their thing out there. Do people ever hurt the seals? 
No, you know they're protected down here, so. And uh, they, they live a pretty good life. They they got a little sardine uh, fish and bait uh, place over here, so they they like hanging out. <laughs> exactly. Um, so tell us, Mike, uh, where did we meet? I mean, we met through the meat business. I mean, you basically opened up, uh, the heritage foods business in the city of Los Angeles and, you know, introduced our foods to dozens of chefs around the LA area. Correct. Yeah. I think it was after Neil Frazier won, uh, or was, was awarded over Kat Cora and Iron Chef using your product that I began, um, that Neil you know, began his inquiry here when he came back home. He said, Mike, you got to find this, this pork for me. And so then uh, from there, our, our relationship blossomed after I found it. What did, uh, why did he call you? What were you doing at the time? I've, I've been his supplier for about 12, 13 years. We supply food and beverage and, and meats, center of the plate meats to Neil at his restaurant, Grace. Yeah, you were one of his very first, almost like founding partners. I mean, yeah. you helped get him when started. When he opened up Boxer Restaurant, nobody would give him credit, and you know, nobody gave him the time of day. We were both starting our careers then, and uh, you know, I I took a, a gamble on him and gave him credit, and you know, I liked what he was doing, and you know, now the other guys come to him and try to sell him, and he won't give them the time of day. So you know, it all works out. That's very good, Mike. I mean, I believe it. Um, and now, but you were with a company called Superior Enhausner, which is a company that you and your two brothers founded, and you basically ran the center of the plate component of a business that distributed basically any and all things to restaurants in California or in Los Angeles, correct? Correct, yes. That's a, it's a, what's called a broadline food service company. Okay. And, you know, it's basically A, a to Z, soup to nuts, but I ran the, the tip of the spear, which is the meat. You know, chefs chefs aren't too interested in where their toilet paper is coming from. They want to know about their dry aged steak, mm-hmm. their pork. That's uh, what gets them interested. In that. And I, I, I began to narrow my field and get just strictly into meats because I wanted to get out of, you know, measuring plates and pots and pans as well and just focus on what I really liked doing, which was working with... Uh, small family farms and creating a niche business business out here in Los Angeles, not competing against the big guys, choice New York steak to choice New York steak, what's your best price, but bringing a chef, heritage pork, among other things, CK lamb, Bruce Campbell's mm-hmm. uh, small family farm lamb up in Sonoma. It's one of the only distributors here to carry that. And it, it was just a niche thing. You know, chefs like Wolfgang Puck at Spago, that's all he'll use. You know, your pork, for instance. I mean, that's all Mario Batali's restaurants use here. Uh, Kumsa, which is David Myers from Sona, his restaurants only use your pork. So it was it was a thing that kind of separated me from the competition. And uh, what were you catering? I mean, um, these very high-end restaurants. I mean, you were at the forefront of a revolution. I mean, these great chefs. I mean, what are some of the leading restaurants or, you know, accounts that you've worked with? I mean, we just mentioned Grace. I mean, who are the other well, kind Wolf of trendsetters? Spago, I'd say uh, Neil Frazier, obviously. And then moving on, David Myers of Sona Restaurant. So Nancy Silverton, the founder of La Brea Bakery okay. Products, her restaurant with her husband, Mark Peel Campanile's. Uh, and then they went on to open, she, she went on to open Moza, Osteria, and Pizzeria with Mario Batali. Uh, also, Laurent Turnadel's restaurant, BLT, 
here, Kumsad. Uh, actually, I already said Kumsad. Kraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Colicchio. Yeah, Tom Colicchio. So, you know, Daniel Balud comes out here. He works with David Myers at Sona. They ask mm-hmm. for your pork. I supply it. So what is desired by these L.A. chefs? I mean, real cutting edge. You know edge. the funny thing about chefs, though, Patrick, yeah. and I'll step in? They don't care who I do. They only care. You know, it's uh-huh. one of those things. Name dropping is not... Uh, when you walk into a chef, he just wants to see the product. He wants to see what you can do for him. They're, it's like an artist. It's like walking into one artist's uh, studio and telling them what another artist did. You can almost get thro- you know, thrown out or lose attention span. If they've worked in that kitchen and they've worked with you, for instance, Alain Giraud, one of the only three-star Michelin chefs here in Los Angeles when he opened up and a set, you know, he, he never worked with me. He could care less who I, who, who I sell. He wanted to see the product, and he saw it. They immediately fall in love with it because they know it's it's not the other white meat. You know, this is this is pork, as you know. I mean, he, this is pork the way pork was meant to be before the you know 1970s other white meat campaign came in and mono bred these these animals into uh, you know white breed of you know maybe two two breeds of monogenous strains, and then that's what ruined. Pork, in my opinion, is why so many chefs got away from pork. It's because it got dry. Mm-hmm. You know, when we lost that fat, we lost that flavor. And, and uh, we've great. never looked back. I mean, you know, other than a few places. But uh, what are these, um, I mean, these chefs, uh, are they, 20 years ago, were they also asking for this? I mean, was there always this component in the sustainability like there might have been in Northern California? I mean, how do you compare Southern California greenness and, you know, when it comes to, you know, center of the plate and, you know, important it's food items? It's just become cool within the last three years, five years before chefs were, you know, country club chefs and white, white tablecloth chefs, they just focused on their beef. And, you know, dry-aged beef has been around for a long time, so you could get your hands on that. But these vintage products, whether it be rabbits or lamb, pork, they really came into being popular down here in the Southern California area within the last three years. I mean, actually, there was the year of the pig right. where, uh, you know, LA, L.A. Magazine... They didn't mention my name, but it's funny. They mentioned every restaurant that I single-handedly came in and, and made pork, you know, pork belly, which was, you know, never, no no one ate pork belly. Right. Raised pork belly was, you know, it was ew, gross. But now it's, you know, it's fashionable. And I single-handedly, you know, went out there on a mission to sell people this, yeah. this pork. I mean, the... Um I mean, distributors get no respect. Like, you know, everyone wants to know the farm, uh, you know, but the middlemen that make it all possible, you know, seem to get the short end of the stick. You know, there's been so many articles that have come by that I've that I thought that at least that it's just mentioned. But yeah, we, you know, we're we're the unsung heroes. But it is what it is. We we make we make our we make our living, and we're happy for that. And we just move forward. You know, I've always uh, said that the uh, you know all great culture you know historically had been you know shepherded along by the merchants you know like the rothschilds and the medicis and i viewed you you know as a great merchant you know within the los angeles area you know even be able to organize these supplies because it was a pain in the ass i mean i know yeah, with heritage the product out here you know i mean these chefs you know matt from from moza and 
the gentleman from Kraft. They you know they want their pork. They want it now. They they don't understand that these animals you know they they come in on Monday. Uh, the animals get looked over. They they are harvested, slaughtered, processed. They get put on a truck out in the middle of the country, and they get to us the following Tuesday. Right. So these chefs, you know, they, they place their order. Sometimes they want something. They want to do head cheese that week, or they, they need to do lardo, and they need to cure lardo, which is the back fat off the big animal. And they want to do it now, and they expect it. And, you know, it's, well, what can you do for me? You know, sometimes you just got to be able nothing, chef. I explained yeah. to you how this program worked. Three times, and they, oh, you know, they they love to forget. Well, uh, listen, we're going to take a short break, and then when we get back, I want to know why racks cost $7 a pound and why heads cost $2 a pound when maybe, if you think food costs, it should be the other way around. Uh, We'll come right back with Mike Antochi, brilliant meat distributor and actor from L.A. Across my mind, so many days of wasted time. You were so kind, then you changed your mind. Living on a railroad track, so many miles not looking back. You had my heart, then you left me flat. Turn me down, turn me down.
All right. Nice. Powerful uh, song. Let me uh, find my banjo away here. <laughs> yeah. Was that you <laughs> playing, Michael? We're the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, this is uh, the news slash entertainment hour. Um, I'm Patrick Martins. We have Michael Antochi, uh, Los Angeles, um, in Los Angeles with us. And um, Michael, tell us why... Uh, shouldn't the head be the most expensive item, like, for instance, on a pig, because the food costs are so good for the chef or the back? Yeah, I mean, if you're an Italian chef, the head the head's one of the most valuable things for you to make uh, head cheese. And I tell you, when I was a kid, you know, they, you know, you're growing up and you hear head cheese or head, it's horrible. But when you have one of these chefs produce it in the way that they do with the love and care that they put into it, I mean, it does, first of all, it doesn't look anything like what you think right and then when you try it i'm sure this broadcast going out to the part of the country that that knows this type of food before we even thought about it here on the west coast and uh, it's just magical what uh what per, or, luxury it, foods is what we call them it's funny luxury foods but often using lesser cuts right of course so um it's funny that luxury is ends up being the cheapest foods i mean has there been a would you associate that three years you said it's been that people have been caring about sustainability and where they get their meats from? I mean, would you also say that that also correlated with like using lesser cuts? You know, I think that came a little later. I think it, it really needed some hot, fine dining chefs to break through that barrier. You know, when Mario Vitale came out here and put a head cheese on a, on a plate out here, it has Moza Osteria. Mm-hmm. It, it it really he, he was the shock jock of, of the restaurants. Wow! To be able to put that out there and people ate it and, and ate it up. I mean, who? What is his clientele? I mean, there are they all like movie actors that are like yeah, I'd say eat? upper up, upper high upper end, but it's a casual dining environment. I mean, anybody can dine there. It's not. Right. Over, that's that's his concept is to not be overly priced, but you know there's the actors and the mainstream and are the actors part of the regular social fabric of a restaurant? Like every restaurant has yeah, their three or four. And um, you know the, the the grips, the guys that work on the sets, not just the actors, but for instance, when when the set when in the studios went on strike, I mean you, it was a noticeable difference in restaurant business. It was just noticeable. You well, could tell there was something going on, and it's uh, it trickles it trickles down. What's the uh, future of uh, the sustainability? I mean, uh, you were a pioneer of you know really. So many people talk about fruits and vegetables. I mean, very very important, but very very few people talk about meat. So you know, as a pioneer of the Marines of the food world um, in Los Angeles, I mean, where do you see it going uh, three, five, ten years down the line? You know. It's a crystal ball question. I I see it becoming more like what Mario Batali did in New York. Uh-huh. What he's done here. I see restaurants having to really, you know, there's a gentleman by the name of Eric Overholzer out here at a restaurant called Tender Greens. Him and his partners used to run, you know, three-star hotels, and they all got together and put out a concept where you can walk into Tender Greens and get food for thirteen, fourteen dollars. Uh, my guys at Bossa Nova, their Brazilian restaurant, thirteen, fourteen dollars, and you're eating basically the same ingredients that you're paying thirty and forty dollars for. People, people don't feel good about walking in, walking out of a restaurant anymore, and 
spending one hundred and fifty dollars or two. So, right. I think with the economy, I think that's really driving people to have to be. You know, the guys who didn't deserve to be in business mm-hmm. are going out of business. The restaurant business is going to be just fine here in Los Angeles with this recession, right. but the people that don't know what they're doing. Those are the guys that are suffering. The yeah, people the that guys, are putting out a good product. Yeah, and who know how to run a business. And who know how to run a business and have service and servers who are really servers and they're not, you know, part time workers aspiring to be, but this is their career. Is that they're a server. You know, their father was a server. Uh, and they, they learned it, they're proud to do it and, and, and that's what's going on here is is there's there's people like that do a great job and you walk out of the restaurant and you feel like you got a, a fair deal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, 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 that's interesting. And do you guys have a renaissance of like cheap foods, like young chefs that open a taco stand or, you know, it's uh, starting to happen. A lot of these young guys, you know, there was an article a little while ago about all the chefs that have worked for Wolfgang Puck and have gone through his uh-huh. various restaurants here and, you know, the ones that have made it. And so, I mean, he's turned out about 40 or 50 top top chefs and if you look at those guys so many of them have gone and are opening up you know uh mexican fast but really eclectic you know cool little spots hangouts and uh, you know whether and, and they're using cuts that you know no one would ever use yeah yeah so it's kind of it's kind of neat and and, and and that's the fun stuff you know it's, right no yeah. that's where it's at and that's where you roll i know uh before we uh uh, leave you, Michael. Thank you so much for giving up a Sunday. I know you have two kids um, and uh, two teenagers be- and a beautiful wife uh, who also helps uh, sell our stuff. Uh, tell me a little bit about this uh, acting and show gig. I mean, are we ever going to see you on the Food Channel or? I, you know, we'll see. They're they're pitching it right now. They've uh, shows called Food Evolution, and uh, I'm the host. And uh, we should be able to get this thing on on air, hopefully, real soon. Well, I we're, hope we're pitching it to a few different networks right now. I hope this sound effect adequately uh, expresses how I hope your career takes off in television. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, um, you know, you too. I think uh, I think if if anybody, I think uh, you you're going to do great on this. You sound you. It's a good topic. It needs to be talked about all these different angles. Nobody really thinks about where their food comes from anymore. Well, you know, um, I always say, you know, you're like one of uh, the guys, basically, I mean, not to be, you know, critical, but like, you know, you came a little bit from the commodity world, like you said, soup to nuts. And for you then to have, uh, you know, almost like uh, in the Lord of the Rings, like you stuck your hand into the water and pulled us and our group of farmers. And I know the CK lamb guys, you pulled up, you know, into the big time in a way, you know, for them. And uh, I think that's real noble. Also bringing the dairy, the dairy cow industry, you know, uh, uh, some light to that. Back East, you guys know all about it, but here in the West coast, nobody knows about veal that comes from the dairy industry. They all think that it veals, and, and and so on and so forth but you know every every dairy sorry sorry that was okay. a total mistake every every dairy every, every dairy has babies on it and and those calves half of those calves are boys and those boys got to go someplace and we've yeah. been able to find farms that will take those boys and raise them for 12 weeks on grain and 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 treat them properly uh-huh humanely and uh, the meat is what the Italians know as vitello. It's red because it's got its iron content, and uh, 
It's, it's half the price of dairy at formula-fed veal, and it's got nice texture, flavor, and uh, I've single-handedly gone out and shown some of the finest chefs in Los Angeles this product. And, you know, you see their their jaw just a, a gap yeah, yeah. when you explain what this is to them. They've never heard of it before, but if you go to Europe, it's a very commonly known product, Vitello Red Veal. You know, it's, it's baby beef. Yeah, no, Absolutely. Well, uh, um, the middlemen the middlemen will never be forgotten on the Heritage Radio Network. You're awesome, Mike. Thanks, and I hope you come back on, you and Darlene. Love to. All right, Take Mike. care. Bye. Yeah. All right, well, that was not much of a conclusion for the Heritage Network. One here 